Is that on? Oh. Wow, this church is a big church. <laughs> uh, a lot of people here. Uh, thank you for the invitation to, to come here. Um, come here with my wife, Colleen. Would you like to stand? It's my Esther. Yeah. <laughs> She's beautiful. She, we have, uh, we've been married 42 years. Um, we have uh, four children. Um, Alice, uh, she's married and a high school teacher. And um, uh, we have uh, Nathan. Uh, he's um, divorced, has three children, and uh, he's a machine operator. And then we have Andrew, who's uh, not married and uh, he was a successful car salesman for a while, but now he's working for a demolition company. He's our itinerant son. And uh, then we have Catherine, our youngest. Um, she works as a, an IT person, and she's married uh, with one uh, little boy. So we have three grandchildren. Uh, four, uh, yeah, boy, uh, girl, boy, boy, girl. And then we have... Girl, girl, boy, boy, grandchildren. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's really good. And it's wonderful to see the, the baby dedications and, um, and new parents that have had the babies. You're following God's will. Because in Genesis 1.28, God instructed Adam and Eve uh, to have children. And this is one of God's wills that we have children. And it's one of the attacks that God has made, uh, that Satan is making on us humans today is to destroy the family. So I, I really encourage you to pray for the young couples and any young couples that had children. It's not easy bringing up children today, both mums and dads, a lot of pressure on them. We need a lot of support. I also would like to encourage you to never discourage any young person from coming to church, no matter how they dress no matter what's in their hair, what music they're listening to. Encourage them to come. Because everyone is special and everyone has been given a gift. Each one of you is given a gift. And God's will for your life is simply to develop that gift. Because God gave you that gift. And that gift is what you're able to do naturally and well. And you'll know what that gift is. And when you see people developing their gift, encourage them. And it's great to hear that you're a praying church because I am a great believer in prayer. I have had so many answers to prayer and my wife and ourselves and we've seen that in our children too. We all need encouragement. Satan is attacking the church. We don't need to attack each other. We don't need to judge each other. We need to encourage each other. When you have a gift... God gave you that gift and God can help you succeed. And God is the greatest person to have on your side. And I'm here before you because people encouraged me in my gift. I had a gift, of, I have a gift of a good brain. And my dad died when I was 13. And how I'm in the Adventist church now is that an Adventist couple heard about this young family that lost their dad and they came along and they showed us much kindness. But something else happened too. 
Later on, as I was going into my matriculation years, um, back in those days we used slide rules. Today you use calculators. I don't even know if you do bother do sums these days. <laughs> but um, in, uh, we didn't have very much money, of course. My mum was a widow and most of the kids in the science classes had a round slide rule, which wasn't as accurate because as you went towards the centre, the scales were smaller. The really expensive slide rules were the Hemi slide rule. They were a long one that the engineers and professional scientists used. And one day this Adventist uh, couple, the husband was a dentist, and he sent a message to my mum that he'd like John to come in and see him as his dental surgery. And that was in town, I had to travel in on the bus, and his assistant just asked me to wait. And when he was finished, he asked me to come in. I had no idea what it was about, I had, didn't have a toothache. <laughs> And um, he called me out the back and he said, John, your mum tells me that you're going to be doing physics and chemistry. And he said, I'd like you to give you this. And he gave me a Hemi slide rule. And they were about four pounds at the time when an engineer's wage was 25 pounds. So that'd be sort of like giving someone, I don't know, an expensive iPad or something today, a computer. He didn't say I had to come to church. I didn't go to church. But he gave me that and I never forgot that gift. And it was many years later when I finished uni and I was wondering what the purpose in life was and I saw the decadent behaviour of some of the other brilliant scientists and I saw the behaviour of a Christian scientist that I'd worked for and the difference that I began questioning and seeking God and found God. And... Uh, I, it's such a wonderful privilege and I think when we have the opportunity to bless someone, bless them and particularly young people, they are going to find so much negative fear, peer pressure and so forth. I think one of the decisions I made when my dad died and I realised I had a good brain, if I was going to survive, I need to preserve it, was I made the decision not to drink alcohol. And I saw several of my school friends destroyed when they went to uni by starting drinking. I made the decision not to smoke because my dad died at 53 of heart attack and my mum at 63 of cancer from smoking. And I also made the decision not to have intimate relations with uh, girls until I was married. And I praised the Lord for that and the God answered my prayer and gave me an absolutely wonderful wife, Colleen who's been a tremendous support. And I praise the Lord that I met her after I became a Christian. And she's a lovely Christian girl. As God attacks our church, many people, you know, wonder what to do. But there are other things, you know, that God says is his will. And perhaps we could have a look at one of these. So one of the ones that God says is to have children, if we can, and not all of us can, but another one is found in John 6.40. If we turn to John 6.40. This is Jesus speaking himself, so it's pretty important. And this is what Jesus said. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
That's God's will. God's will is that everyone be saved, that everyone see Jesus. And how are they going to see Jesus? They're going to see Jesus in us. It's the things that we do that reflect Jesus. And so that's so important in our lives as Christians. Coming here today as a witness. You're witnessing to people that you're keeping the Sabbath. You're keeping a memorial to God as our creator. You're recognising that there is a higher authority. There's God who is our creator and our saviour who comes. And for all of us too, another favourite verse of mine is John 17, 3. And this is Jesus again talking because sometimes the atheists say, ah, there's no God, there's no eternal life. Christopher Hitchens, when he died, no, I, there's no God, I'm just going to be dead. But you know God, Jesus, who was God, he said, and this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And this book that we have, that so many people in the past gave their lives for, were burned at the stake for that, so that we have this today. This is a book of the experiences of people who knew God. And so how we get to know God is by reading about their experiences. They knew God. This is a record of this, and this is why this book is so important. And I guess if there's anyone here today and you haven't made a decision for God, I would encourage you to go and talk to someone and make that decision to start. It's scary. It's embarrassing. Some people will mock you, but that's Satan talking. God wants you to be saved. God loves you just so much that in the battle with Satan, he says, I don't care. I don't want these people to die. I don't want humans to die. I made them. I love them. I'm going to die in their place. He showed Satan up. God loves us so much. Make that special decision and never, don't put off getting baptised. Make that public decision. It's scary. We sometimes go to a little church that's held in a community centre and it's associated with the food bank where my wife works. And we have people come in and at, after Sabbath school they go outside and they smoke <laughs> and they don't wear suits and ties, I assure you. And they have teeth missing and tattoos. But we had a baptism of a young boy that had been homeless. He'd left an Islamic home, Muslim home, and, um, and he'd married one of the uh, girls in the church and he was getting baptised. And when the pastor asked for people to come down, we had four of the people just from the community. They come to, came down and I, I said... Don't be afraid. It's scary, but make the decision. It's, when you look back, it'll be the best decision you ever made to be baptised. Because God comes in and changes you. God is not some theoretical God. God is real and so powerful and he can come into our lives and he can change our lives. But what's more, despite all the pressures of the world, all the negatives of the world, God can still make us beautiful people. Despite whatever your past has been, whatever you've done, God can change. You might have teeth missing, scars, tattoos, but God can change you so that you glow and shine as a beautiful person. And that's true. You will become a person that blesses others. 
But in the world around us, we see the world changing. I've seen the changes since when I was a little boy, where, you know, there was just more love in the community and it was safer and people didn't lock their homes and when the milkman came round, my dad gave them a Christmas card and some money at Christmas time and you knew the baker and things have changed and we see those changes, unfortunately. And Jesus spoke about them in Matthew 24, verse 28. And this is what Jesus said. And he said... Now, how come I've got the wrong verse there? Ah, okay, because it was Matthew 38. <laughs> oh, well, maths. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marrying until the day Noah entered the ark. And then they did not know that the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. People scoff at the idea of the flood. They scoff at the idea of the Bible and that Jesus is going to come again. But you know, we have amazing evidence for a global flood. And I've forgotten my little beeper, I think. My, or did I put it in my pocket? No. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I get nervous too. Just like humans. So in Genesis, we see that... Um, describes Genesis 6 to 8, you can read it, and I'm sure many of you have read it, that the earth was covered and God told Noah to build an ark and his family went in and the animals went in and that was a miracle. The animals went in as a miracle. So the, the flood is not just some pure uh, physical event. The flood was a miraculous event. There were mirac the boat and the people were preserved miraculously. But you know... This is supported by geology. When we look at the surface of the earth, the geology of the surface of the earth is coated with a very thin layer of sedimentary rock that was laid down underwater. 70% of, of the rock on the surface of the earth is sedimentary and then another percentage is uh, metamorphosed or heat treated, heat affected sedimentary rock and only a relatively small fraction, I forget exactly what it is, around 20% is volcanic rock that has come up since. So the surface of the earth is covered by this thin layer of rock. The whole surface of the earth is covered. And this surface contains the remains of animals that were wiped out during extinction processes. So the standard geological um, understanding is that there are about five or six uh, extinction events, worldwide extinction events, caused by flooding that destroyed animals and destroyed life. So one of the biggest was the Cretaceous that they say occurred 65 million years ago it's when the dinosaurs were wiped out, when the massive limestone deposits were formed and that sort of thing. So really, geology tells us that there was a global flood. It's just that they have it hundreds of millions of years ago and um, I think the first global extinction event was about 450 million years ago, according to conventional dating. And then uh, the last one, I think, was, there might have been one after Cretaceous, I can't remember. And the thing is, when we look around the world, 
we see these massive sedimentary deposits everywhere. And the other thing is that we don't observe these massive destructive events occurring today. In known history since that time, we haven't had those events. Now, nearby here, you've got the Grand Canyon, and I'm hoping I might be able to see that tomorrow. Um, but when the layers aren't real clear on these slides, but when you look at pictures, you'll see that the layers are, are largely horizontal and parallel, and there's no signs of erosion in between the layers, and yet they're supposed to cover, that period there is supposed to cover a period of about 400 million years, and yet there's no sign of erosion. If we look at some of the formations where they find the dinosaurs, the Morrison Formation, for example, stretches from New Mexico to Canada. It's absolutely huge. So you've got this huge sedimentary deposit of sandstone and conglomerate that has been carried in. All this rock has been, all these particle material have been carried in and deposited over a huge area of the United States. For that to happen, for the amount of water to carry that, it's just uh, you know, incomprehensibly massive event was occurring to spread that sedimentary rock. It's massive. It's not going to happen just by some lake bursting, you know, and spreading a little bit. It's a huge amount. We've got chalk beds up to 100 metres thick, 300 feet thick, that stretch from England across to Turkey. It's huge. And you've got the Grand Canyon, you know, a mile thick. Uh, so if we look up there, we've got chalk deposits that spread from here right across down here to Turkey. From Ireland right across here to Turkey. It's the same deposit all through there. And so you've got, for example, the White Cliffs of Dover, and you've got, um, oh, I've just forgotten that name now in Turkey, Cappadocia in Turkey. And you've got the coal beds that similarly stretch right across Europe, and you've got them you know, in Australia and in the United States, in Russia, these massive coal beds, and they all date the same. Or they all fit in the same layer of strata. You've got the, the Coconino sandstone. Uh, I hope I've pronounced that especially. These are huge deposits, but the thing is, within these deposits, if you imagine a sand dune, and sand dunes move across the, the countryside. So near where I live is Stockton Beach, and it's inundating over farmland as the dunes move across because the sand on the front of the dune is blown and moved over to the back of the dune. So the dunes move across. And um, the same when sand is moved underwater and you can get these layers like that which, and you can have different material, a bit of darker material, slightly different will be deposited and they form what they call a cross bedding. And from the slope of that cross bedding, knowing the density of water and so forth, they can calculate the speed and flow of the water. And those uh, flows indicate the water is moving very rapidly, sort of what we were associated with deep uh, ocean currents and tsunamis. And so you're all familiar with the United States. So we've got massive sedimentary deposits that are spread over huge areas of the country. And the other thing is they don't show surface erosion. So they can't have been laid down over the 400 million odd year period. They had to be laid down in quick succession, one on top of the other. Otherwise we would see erosion in between. So here you've got a schematic of the Grand Canyon layer and the layers are what we call conformably laid over one another. So this is a major headache for geologists. The other thing is that the creatures must have been very rapidly. 
So there we have a marine reptile fossilised while giving birth to a baby. So that's where all these things indicate very rapid birth. Here we have a picture of a fish eating another fish. Uh, sorry, a fossil, a fossil of another fish. So we know from these fossils, which are in the museums, that they had to be buried very rapidly. Uh, that's an Adventist um, paleontologist uh, studying one of the whale fossils that are buried on the mountains of Peru. And so uh, here again, and we can see the balloon there that is still intact. The balloon usually separates fairly quickly from whales. Uh, they're not very strongly attached. So again, this huge animal, and there's about a dozen of them there, must have been buried very quickly, and they're not going to be buried by just you know, some small amount of sediment. You've got to have a massive amount of sediment. You've got to have massive catastrophic conditions to bury these animals. And here they are. That's the setting up there in Peru, fossil whales, eh? Pretty cool evidence. But when we look at historical data around the world, we find that traditions in all the major civilizations around the world had flood traditions far prior to Christian or Western influence. And there's a summary of them there. And you see they essentially have the story of the flood. But the Hebrew account that we have in our Bible is the most sensible account, most realistic account. Like some of the ancient... Oh, there's one. Um, unfortunately, I can't read it now. The slide is... But this is from a Chinese... Um, account in China of the flood and the people being really wicked and God having to destroy them. And so this comes up. Many of your American Indian traditions are that, that the people were really wicked. They weren't looking after the children properly and God had to destroy them. It's fascinating, these uh, things that are there. This is a full-size replica of the ark that's in Hong Kong. I don't know whether any of you have seen that. That was built by a Chinese billionaire. And um, we're there, that's, uh, you probably can't see, but that's Colleen there. <laughs> and um, that's, these are some pictures, so some folk that we saw uh, there. There's, it's not real clear, but that is a, a big freeway overpass over there. It's the side of the arc. They're not real clear, are they? But that um, gives you a bit of an idea. So it's a full-size replica of the arc. The other thing is that Shem, who was on the ark, was still alive at the time of Abraham. So when you look at the dates of when the patriarchs died, as you can see there, the flood was 2348. Now, that's a date just on just pure maths. But really, when we look at the begat ages and they say so-and-so begat something when he was 65, was he 65 in one week or was he 65, you know, and 11 months about to turn 66? And so you've got a ten, you know, at least plus 10-year error in uh, the pre-plug calculations, plus a 10-year you know, error in the second. So it's plus 10 years, up to 10 years, just on the pure mass. And there may be, we don't know if possibly there is a, a generation or two missing, although I don't think there is. But when we look at just the straight biblical chronology, we see that... Um, uh, Abraham's father Terah was born and Noah was still alive and we see that then Abraham was born and then Shem died and then Abraham died and then Moses died. Moses died so it's quite possible for these accounts for the pre-flood to be passed directly on 
very, very reasonable. Now, when we look, there's not many chronologies have, have survived because we had the library in Alexander was, Alexandria was burnt down and there was a Chinese emperor who lived about the time of Christ who organised for all the books and historical records to be burned. And I'll tell you, tell you, Satan has made many attempts to ride out, destroy the records of history. But some have survived. And what tracked down the four, well, some of the four chronologies that have survived. So these are actual historical secular chronologies that survived. So we know from one of the chronologies that when Alexander the Great defeated Darius in 331 BC, he went to Babylon. So Alexander the Great was going to rebuild Babylon. And when he was there, the astronomers who were there, the Babylonian astronomers, gave him 1,903 years of astronomical observations that were baked onto bricks. They showed him that his, their observations. And when you do the calculation, that dates Babylon back to being founded 2234 BC, or about 100 years after the flood and 33 years before the birth of Peleg, which we say his birth coincided probably with the, uh, with the Tower of Babel. So here we have a secular Babylonian uh, astronomical account that confirms the biblical dating for the founding of Babylon. Another one, uh, and sort of admittedly this is a, a medieval historian and a Christian historian, wrote that the Egyptian state lasted 1,663 years. And he was uh, doing a history of Persia, and so he dated it from the date that Cambyses conquered Persia in 526 BC, which would give a date for the founding of Egypt as 2,188 BC, or about 13 years after the scattering of the people, or 150 years after the flood. Now this would be during the time of Mizraim. Now, many people don't realise that Egypt is simply the Greek name for Moses' son Mizraim, uh, not uh, Noah's son Mizraim. Egypt, the country, is named after Noah's grandson, Mizraim. Matter of fact, I have an Encyclopedia Britannica at home uh, that has an atlas in it, and Egypt isn't called Egypt, Egypt is called Mizraim. And so, you know, I've spoken to some evolutionists about that. They, they say, no, you, you're wrong, you can't be right. So many of the countries and towns around are named after Noah's grandson, after Noah's children, grandchildren. And um, <clears throat> so, and the Bible talks about Egypt being the son of uh, Ham. So, um, uh, Egypt being the land of Ham. So... According to the 4th century historian Eusebius, um, Agliaeus, the king of the Greek city of Siam, began his reign in 2089 BC, or 1,013 years before the first Olympiad in 776 BC. And so if you do the calculation, that says that the first Greek kingdom started about that time after the dividing of the, of the uh, peoples. And so here we've got three different histories, Babylon, Egypt and Greece. 
each spoken in a different language, but their histories all concur with the biblical history. Uh, one of the few historical records that did survive the, uh, the purge of burning around the first century um, was the bamboo annals, and this is an Encyclopedia Botanica reference. Um, and it says that according to this, their chronology, so this is the oldest surviving Chinese chronology. So, of course, Chinese historians want to date their kingdom back on the basis of carbon-14 dating and so forth. But when we go to their oldest chronology, that says that the first uh, ruler in China, the first sage, Fuxi, uh, began his rule in 1994 BC. So when we look at a summary of this, we see that um, we've got the flood, and then we've got Peleg, or the Tower of Babel, and the scattering of people. And we've got Babylon, and uh, founded first. Then we've got Egypt, then we've got Greece, then we've got Noah dying, and then we've got China. And it's interesting that when, according to Young, who did one of the first concordances, he was a great guy, and he studied a lot of history. And according to the traditions that he discovered in China, they said that Noah was the person who went to China and founded China. So this is, this is quite fascinating, how these chronologies... And when you look at the distance from Babylon, these, uh, it's in the right order. The further they are away, the later they were founded. So the best surviving um, histories confirm the Bible. When we look at the Table of Nations, we find uh, the land of Egypt the land where Egypt settled or Mizraim settled, the land of Ham. Um, and then we find that Manentho, now this is interesting because Manentho was a, an Egyptian. He was an Egyptian priest. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't a Christian. This is 270 BC. He was an Egyptian priest in Alexandria and he was writing the history of Egypt. So this is an Egyptian priest writing the history of Egypt and this is what he says, <clears throat> that after the flood, Ham, the son of Noah, begat Egyptus or Mestrum, who was the first to establish himself as the area now known as Egypt, when the tribes began to disperse. This isn't a Jewish writer. This is, uh, at the time, we're under the Greek um, occupation of Egypt. This is an Egyptian priest writing under the Greek occupation saying that Egypt was founded by Noah's grandson. We've got the pyramids there. When we look at the table of nations, the Greeks were referred to the sons of Javan, another grandson of Noah, second son of Japheth. And Javan is the Hebrew name for Greece and used to... Uh, so, and Robin Young notes that Japheth is probably the original of Jap uh, Japetus, or Lapetus, whom the Greeks said was the ancestor of the race. So we see the Greek mythology also links in with the Bible. Uh, the ancient Armenian writers um, called the Armenians the descendants of Togoma and uh, Ashkenaz, the sons of Goma, who was one of the sons of Japheth. And Japheth had another son called Magog. And Josephus says that the Magogatites were called the Scythians by the Greeks. So what's happened is we've had the names have been changed in the different languages. So just as Mizram's name was translated Egypt into Greek, 
from the Hebrew. So the names of these other people have been changed, but they all relate back. So these are secular histories now, not biblical data. This is secular data, secular history, dating back to uh, the saying the descendants of the different groups of Europe were descendants from, uh, from Noah. You can see there that another one of Japheth's son was uh, Madai, who according to Josephus was the father of the Medeans or the Medes. This is a, a picture of the Elba tablets were discovered back in the 1960s there in northern Syria. Uh, or in the 70s, sorry, 1974. And uh, these uh, contained uh, the king list and archive of ancient cuneiform uh, documents. But these documents referred to the Canaanites and the land of Canaan. And of course, Canaan was another uh, son of Ham, another grandson of Noah. And Canaan was the father of Sidon. And we know it's the famous town on the Mediterranean coast and so forth. And... Um, also, these tablets recorded uh, the, um, and it talks about, uh, recorded the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, Ada and Zebulun. And um, that's interesting because the skeptics have said, no, there's no such towns as Sodom and Gomorrah. They never existed. They were myths. But here they found the reference to these towns. Now, when that happened, the guy who, who was the um, professor of Assyriology at the University of Rome, uh, Petronetto, he was sacked. And his original translation was removed from the issues of the, uh, the archaeological journals on the internet. So I couldn't look them up. But one of the archaeology lecturers at Monash University, another university in Melbourne, Australia, had been to his lectures and had put his notes up on the, on the internet. So that's how I was able to access them. But since then, um, uh, Patanato has published his papers through John Hopkins University Press. But when that first came out, that he had actually discovered archaeological evidence for the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah, he was sacked from the university in Rome. And he was replaced by a guy who was an expert in Hittite history. So this is, this, and he comments, he said, it seems like every time we find evidence that supports the Bible, there are massive efforts to discredit that evidence. And so we need to recognise that that is going on in the academic world. The flood is mentioned as a historical record in the Sumerian king list that are preserved on the world Blundell prism. That's a picture of it there that's in the museum at Oxford University. Then, of course, in the Sabbath school, I mentioned the observations of George Dodfall, the South Australian government astronomer, uh, who noted that there were the... Uh, who followed up and researched the reports of the additional wobble in the Earth's flood and calculated that there'd been a major disturbance of the Earth that shook the Earth violently around about 2,500 BC. This is a very interesting thing. When we look at the Bible account, and people often say, you know, the Bible is myth, look, the, the ages, are, they're just numerical, you know, they have, they're symbolical 
numerical values that have been assigned to them. But it's interesting that when we look at the biblical ages before the flood, the people lived about 900 years, roughly, before they died. And then after the flood, their ages dropped. Well, when we look at the ancient Sumerian kinglist too, they had them living really long times, but ridiculously long lives, 20,000 years and 15,000 years and 12,000 years. And there's a huge random variation in their ages. And then after the floods, the ages are shorter and they're just up and down all over the place. But the biblical ages after the flood follow a genetic decay curve. This is really interesting stuff. I think I've got a picture of it. When you plot the ages, right, prior to the flood, you've got them up the top here, and so that's 900 years on this scale. You can't read it on the slide back there, but that's 900 years, that's 1,000 years, right? 1,000 years. So you can see the people are living roughly 900 years before the flood. Then after the flood, the age of the patriarchs drops away. These are the biblical ages, and here we've got the centuries, okay? The centuries after the flood. I think 10 centuries. Anyway, years after the flood. So we can see the genomic decay there. And it's interesting that uh, Sanford, who is from uh, Stanford, uh, uh, no, sort of Cornell University, he worked at as a geneticist and he was one of the guys that uh, first developed genetic engineering and the gene gun to put parts of DNA in other organisms. He's done the calculation and the, co and the coefficient is very good, 0.9, that's quite good correlation with the theoretical value of the rate at which we observe mutations forming. And uh, so what again we see when we look at these mythical accounts, they're not scientific. When we look at the Bible account, it fits scientific observations. And yet these are accounts written thousands of years ago by different authors. That's pretty cool. But there's more. This is an Ashtonian theory. But one of the research that is coming out now, now a lot of this research is being done in, in Hungary. And of course, Hungary is famous for its physics. Um, Leo Saland was a Hungarian physicist, probably haven't heard of him, but he was the guy that invented nuclear reactions. So it wasn't Einstein, it was Leo Zeland, and he was the director of physics at the German Institute of Physics. And that's how Germany knew how to build an atomic bomb. And the only reason why the Allies knew how to make an atomic war bomb was Leo Zeland on the day that Hitler was elected to power took the train out of Germany and got across to England and the next day Hitler closed the borders to scientists leaving Germany and Leo Zeland's saying was and you can remember this it's a secular saying you don't have to be smarter than anybody else just one day ahead of them Pretty cool. He's a very clever guy, Leo Salan. He worked with Einstein, came across here to America and worked on the Manhattan Project with Einstein. And both of them signed a petition to, I think it was President Roosevelt, objecting to the development of the atomic bomb. They didn't want the bomb developed. I could tell you lots of other stories, but I better concentrate here, otherwise you'll miss out on lunch. But what happened is this, um, <clears throat> what they've discovered is 
In the background water that is in our environment, it's about 150 parts per million heavy water. And that is made water with hydrogen, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. But heavy water is two deuterium atoms and an oxygen atom. And deuterium is a hydrogen with a neutron in the nucleus. So hydrogen has no neutron, just a proton. When you add a neutron in there, it's still hydrogen. Remember the isotope lecture? It's called deuterium and it's heavier, heavy water. When we remove the deuterium water or the heavy water from normal water, cells and plants grow more slowly. And it's now being researched. They're, researched, they're using it as a cancer, anti-cancer treatment. So far, the patents are only been approved for veterinary use. But what they find is if they give people deuterium-depleted water, the cancers grow much more slowly, and therefore it gives them a chance to use other treatments more effectively. So the Ashtonian theory is this, that in the Edenic biosphere, the water was depleted in deuterium. There was very little, maybe no deuterium. And so things grew more slowly. Hence the begat age for the men was in their 60s, not 14 or 15 as it would be now. And so this accounts for the longer lifespan, maybe the animals and so forth growing larger, things living longer. And so possibly during the flood, where the Bible describes the fountains of the deep birth forth, underground water we know is very rich in heavy water. It's rich in deuterium. The waters that are least in deuterium are snow deposits at the North and South Pole. And we know that there are some ancient waters that have been preserved that are also very low in deuterium and, and I believe pre-flood waters. So the evidence is there that before the flood, the content of deuterium in water was much lower. And so if God then released, the higher deuterium water came up, that would then, of course, an increased rate of mutations. And so that's what they found. With the deuterium is depleted, there are less errors accumulating in the DNA of living organisms. So I think this is pretty cool evidence that supports the biblical model and the decrease in lifespan after the flood. So people say, well, you can't have a model, scientific model for creation. Well, this is one, deuterium, the addition of deuterium, heavy water, uh, deuterium rich water into our biosphere after the flood can account for the decrease in ages of people after the flood. So summing up, We've got massive sedimentary rock deposits worldwide, evidence for the flood. We have massive fossil beds and massive amounts of animals, like huge numbers of animals buried all at once. And it takes a lot to bury and smash up dinosaur bones. And they're big animals. And you've got to have a massive event occurring to do that. And um, so we have all this evidence. Many towns and countries in that area um, around uh, the Middle East there are named after Noah's children. And Disneyland is named after Disney. It's not Mickey Mouse Land. It's named after a real person. Um, Rhodesia is named after Cecil B. Rhodes. You know, you don't name, you know, we don't have Superman. 
land or whatever, you know. Uh, we name countries after real people. That's what people did, you know. Um, and um, so that is natural. And the Genesis account is scientifically realistic. The size of the ark, its shape, all these sort of things. We have astronomical evidence. We've got deuterium theory evidence. And of course, that's my book. So we can have a lot of confidence that the flood was a real global historical event. Now, if God referred to that and said that just like the world was destroyed then, so I'm going to come about again and bring judgment on the people. As he says in Revelation 11, one day God will destroy the people who are destroying the earth. And we're all involved in that. God loves us heaps, but we've sold ourselves over to Satan. But God says, it's okay, come back to me, just choose me. It's that simple, isn't it? Choose God. And that's what he wants us to do. We've, we're in the last days now, we can see that. This is a message we have to make sure for ourselves, that we're right with God. We've chosen God. We've said, God, I want you to be my Lord. I submit to you. I submit to your laws and commandments. They're right and true. And I want you to come into my life. And God will. And he will fill you with, as Jesus promised, his peace and his joy. And in, when the world presses in on us and things are bad, we can know, just like Job did, that God is with us. And our family has been through bad things. Going through our son's divorce, was a terrible thing. We saw him almost destroyed. But praise the Lord, we've seen him get his life back together again because he was a beautiful person. And we can go through these things. Sometimes we go through uh, things of sickness. We go through people accusing us of things we didn't do. We see people tarnishing our reputations and our name. And we have to go through these things. And things hurt. And bad things happen and we have road accidents and we get cancer. But we can know that these are all things because of Satan acting in this work and the evil angels and evil people influenced in these things. You may have read about the siege in Sydney the, where the Muslim man sieged a, 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 a chocolate shop in Sydney, right in the centre of the Sydney CBD. And the person that was killed, one that, that was killed, was this beautiful Christian lawyer woman. She was a brilliant lawyer. She had aced all the top university classes in law. She was working for a top law firm and she was a beautiful person. She was the one killed. Later on, a young Muslim boy went into a police station, pulled a gun and shot a clerk at the desk. And that was another lovely Christian person. When we looked at the, there was a horrible, you know, horrible crimes that are committed just by really bad people. And I look up, often the people that were killed, like we had the massacre at Port Arthur, a lot of those people that that horrible gunman killed were Christians. And they were people getting in the way and protecting other people. And these bad things do happen. But it's amazing as I've seen how God brings good out of all these things. And of course, there are many wonderful Muslim people as well. And they, you know, they hate the bad things that are happening as well. But there is an attack on Christianity and we need to support one another. 
And in your own lives, make sure always daily you're right, right with God. This book is the experience. Pray. God will give you those experiences and he'll give you that joy to hang in there. Well, I've said a lot this morning. Thanks for staying. But praise the Lord we're here, eh? Rejoice with that. And as you go out, support each other. And through the week, support each other because I know lots of you will be going through things. And just having babies is so stressful too. And we, you, you need support. And you young couples that have had your children dedicated, you know, hang in there and just always praise your children. Believe in them because they will become what you say they are. My mum said to me, all the time she believed that God had a purpose for me and she didn't go to church she was confirmed Anglican but she used to say that all the time God has a purpose for you I don't know why she said that but you know and I believe God has given me a purpose now to study in the areas of creation to use my science mind in this way and if you have a gift don't be afraid of that gift don't be afraid of saying this is my gift and praise God for it you, you don't have to be proud and this sort of thing, but, but that's your gift and you need to use it and, and develop it and grow it and, and praise the Lord for it. Anyway, I'm still talking. I need to stop. Let's have a benediction. I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are absolutely awesome, God, and we just thank you so much that you forgave us for all the things that we've done. We thank you so much that you love us so much and we know that you want to bless us so much too. Lord, at times we do many things wrong and we forget you. We charge off and do our own things. We know you are just so patient, Lord, but everyone here, Lord, needs you. And I pray, Lord, that you will pour out an abundant measure of their, your peace and joy into everyone here. And if there's anyone here who hasn't given their heart to you, Lord, I just pray, Lord, Show them how much you love them. And I pray for that person or those people. Don't be afraid. It is scary, but don't be afraid. Just reach out to God. And in your mind, just hold his hand and he will be there for you. And anyone here, no matter what you're going through, God feels that with you too. Hang on to his hand. He's there. Just imagine that you're holding on to his hand. He will be with you. He will strengthen you. And when you're partying and when you're happy, remember God is joining you too. He loves parties. He loves seeing you happy. We're destined to be happy. And Lord, we just pray for your blessing and protection. Protect us against the evil that surrounds us. And help each one of us to have the courage to speak for you and to help our friends to be saved too. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.